and welcome to Lily High on Life. Today I am thrilled to introduce you to Hilary McNiven. Hilary, hi and welcome. Lily, thank you so much for having me. You, can, you can't not be high on life when you're in your company, seriously. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I believe if you're going to be around, you might as well be happy. Or work very hard at being so. Absolutely, and it's yeah. always a choice. Now, it is, yeah. Hilary, one of the reasons I wanted to interview you is that you really have a positive outlook on life, as does anybody who listens to Lily <laughs> High on Life. But also, you have the dream job that you created for yourself that most people would love, love, love to have. You get to eat and t- <laughs> tell people about it, and then... That gives you income and money as well. Well, I get to eat and and taste, well, and taste and talk, and represent um, and work with amazing clients now. So I've had. Thank you for saying that, Lily. It is a pretty much a fun job. Some days it's it's work, you know, and so you're like big deep breath, deep breath in, and and you've got to get up and get on with it. But um, I do often. Pretty much every day, um, make sure I am grateful also for the work I do because it's um, it's hard work, but I love it. And Tell I feel us a very little lucky. bit about about what that what it actually involves and how you sure. got into it. So well, what it is or how I got into it. If I can, I work in the food and wine world. I like to call myself a food communicator, if you will, and. Um, I'm 55 and gosh, I went to hospitality college when I finished school in Brisbane. Now people, Brisbane and its restaurant scene is really growing and very positive in the last, you know, in the last five years or more. But when I was a teenager, um, it wasn't, uh, Mm. it wasn't renowned for that anyway, but I loved it. I fell in love with mum, mum was a great cook and there was, um, we always ate together and the whole idea of dining out to me was kind of this fascinating, beautiful thing. And it was also the late eighties. So Gourmet Traveller was coming up. I am um, my brother, um, who has since left us, but he worked in restaurants too and moved to Melbourne in the mid eighties. Wow! So I worked in restaurants. If you have a, a large Melbourne audience, places like Petit Shoe, I think it was in Armadale. So well, actually, Lily, hi, my life goes global. <gasps> Hello, everyone, everywhere. But <laughs> Petit Shoe was a very well known. I remember f- it. There you go. Yeah, he was there. He was there, and um, so. He kind of instilled an interest in food and wine for me because it was this really intriguing. He's in Melbourne and he's working at this fancy restaurant and he's talking about all these wines from all over the world and and the idea of looking after people really appealed to me and I ended up doing a hospitality management degree when I finished school and um, worked front of house for many years and travelled a lot with that. Um, worked in London for quite what a few years. What does that involve working front of house? Well... It's because an, people come in and they yeah. they order and they eat and what, do, what what does that actually involve working in a restaurant front of house? Well, front of house is all yes, it's being a waiter, and then there's management and being sommelier. There's also runners. There's also there's 
in the sort of levels of restaurant that I was working at at the time, there was the food runners and a section waiter and then the supervisor and then the manager and, and there was tiers and a hierarchical structure which ensured that everyone had the most gorgeous time and hopefully customers didn't really have to think too much. They had beautiful, magical things happening around them, which is I, th- I think is the best kind of service you, you can have. And um, so I was um, just, a, a, well, not just, but a front of house a section waiter for a long time and moved into... Um, management and different management roles and then when I I moved back to Brisbane I I was saying grew up in Brisbane and after my time in the UK went back to Brisbane for a few months and then decided it was 97 and um how did you end up in the UK traveling just wanted to travel and wanted to get some work and um because you still have a little bit of that in your accent oh I think (laughs) I have a isn't it funny people say I don't sound like I'm from Queensland. I had my mother was a speech teacher. My father used to win awards for public oh. speaking, and I, my sisters and my brother, all of us were sort of always said that we're told we spoke well. I think it's from it's from Brisbane. <laughs> you kind of think oh no, you talk like that. that yeah, all yeah. the vowels. Yeah, yeah. It's not everyone in Brisbane talks like that. I have to say. I know. <laughs> I know. But um, but so yeah, and I remember growing up and having when you'd practice having to do a talk for English or something like that. Mm-hmm. If you if I did it in front of my parents, it would be constructively criticised. I mean, they weren't me. They were just do that again, say that sentence again, speak better. How you wonderful. Know. And so I feel very lucky for yeah, that. Absolutely. And um, and so to so go. You were encouraged to travel after school. Um, encouraged to study more so. I wanted to travel. I was. It was never discouraged. And um, to study and travel and just find our own feet. And did you go by yourself or with friends? I did go so- by myself when I first left. I was mid twenties then. Wow. And um, yes, I found that's happened, and that's kind of just the way I've lived a lot. Just if I wanted to do something, I thought, well, you can't wait forever for someone to do something with you. That's so a great way to be. I think so. <laughs> I think, well, it's, it's, it's a part of me that I don't, that I am a, a very appreciative of. Yes. And I'm very thankful for. And it's important. There are a lot of people that cannot, under fear of death, sit in a restaurant by themselves oh, well, or even a picture theatre by themselves they're two of my favourite things to do on my own actually mm. <laughs> and I don't think that means I love finding a restaurant that you can dine alone you and I both know that we both yes. are good at that we, that's how we met yes know? and um, that and I often say to restaurant owners who have those kind of restaurants I said don't I thank them for it because it doesn't mean you're lonely. It might just mean it's your time to relax. It's a very relaxing thing to do, to dine mm. alone. It's all on your terms. <laughs> and the waiter, if they're a good uh, the front of house staff, yes. if they're good at what they do, will know if you're up for a chat or not, you know, so they'll leave you alone or yeah. not. Yeah. And um, I just – so travelling for me – was about learning about hospitality and throwing myself into that, but also throwing myself into a bit of the deep and end as how well. How did you get into the actual critiquing of food or oh. writing about it? Because mm. it was way before it was as popular as it is now. It was something I had, when I was saying before in the late 80s and with my hospitality study, Gourmet Traveller was just coming up. And I, they were talking about these new chefs like Jacques Raymond and Neil Perry. You know, like it was they were they were just up and coming. And I read, and I was in this, you know, room in the suburbs of Brisbane, reading about these Sydney and Melbourne chefs and this exciting life somewhere else. And um, 
I, sorry, I've lost my train of thought. How, how did you get into the writing of it? The writing, yes. So after hospitality, being someone who read about it a lot, um, I always had in the back of my head, wouldn't it be great to write for these beautiful magazines or write these books and that kind of thing. My daughter, who's now 21, um, when I married her father and when she, and for three years, I, he was a chef, he is a chef, um, we're not together anymore, but, and I was front of house and we were sort of in that realm and worked in different together and separately. And when my daughter came along, I wanted to be at home with her and I thought, there was a course at RMIT. It was very hard to get into, um, a writing and editing course. And I thought if I can get into that, I, I can hopefully try to get some freelance work and also study. And I did get in, just part-time. Um, but part-time was good because then I had a year off to have my son, who's now 18. And um, it was wonderful. So, But that's a great thing because to think about something you want to do and then just go and do it is yeah. something that some people don't even realise they can do. Yeah. Just because they want to do something, they don't think they can even try it. I think that's really key, I think, Lily. It's to think, when I say I just did, I got into the course and this doors only opened because I kept knocking on them. I was lucky in that, but it's also, I'm a big believer in the harder you work, the luckier you get. But um, I knew some of the food writers from my restaurant days. And I went to a couple of them as I was sort of thinking, am I going to do this course? Do I really want to do a, be a writer? And sent them a couple of examples of my work. And they were wonderfully harsh on me, which is what an editor, as in when I say wonderfully, like my parents as well, yeah. it was constructive. And it was... You're, you're not writing for, you know, understand you're writing for an audience, understand what a writer and journalist does and understand what your role is. And I didn't, I think I think I just went in with what a lot of people think, oh, I'm just going to be a writer and I'm just going to write all these things I think about food. But when you're a food writer for the age or and all the amazing people that do those roles now, they're writing for their audience. Yes. And um, you just, it's, it, it's about training yourself and working really hard and, 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 committing yourself to knowing that that's what you want to do and you won't do anything else i think for me when you say not giving up or you know just giving it a try i didn't imagine i'd do anything else uh, so yeah. being a food writer for me and then i realized was just i just wasn't going to do anything else i didn't give myself any options <laughs> does that make sense and, and how do you, like, now that you've done it, like, as you got into each new publication and mm -hmm. new magazine and all these fabulous online things now and everything, yes. just walk me through that evolution for you in terms of expanding oh, and, and the role and I'm coming now. into yes. yes, Yeah, because we haven't got into what I actually, how, how it's evolved, <laughs> which is all good. Um, so I wrote for the age for, for, as a freelancer for 12 years and while, during that time wrote for The Guardian and SBS Food and Broadsheet for a long time. They're great friends and colleagues. So are the guys at the age actually. And um, I and, and other publications, Delicious and, and contributed to a couple of books, um, edited a book, wrote a book about sustainable fish that I did while I was still at RMIT. And um, 
As I went along, and as journalism and media changed, sustainable fish was that sustainable or was that? Or is it that? is still. I only gave a talk about it last week to a group of women and men, but um, at a, um, a club in the city, and um, the ocean's a big passion, and swimming's a big ah. passion, and. Um, but I love contradicting myself. I'm a big lap swimmer. I love swimming, but I love the ocean. I love swimming in the sea. But not an, I'm not an ocean swimmer like some people who can get out there and just go at it for ages. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. just and I love seafood. And I the whole the fact that we're seventy percent water and thirty so percent land. With the concept of the book, or? I workshopped it with my uni class, and wow. yeah, and it was a project. It was a, an assignment that I sent to a publisher and. You know, I think about four people bought it, and that's okay. It was 2008. <laughs> that's all right. It was a great experience. Just and it about. looks great on your resume. <laughs> yeah, well, it's and it's an ever-evolving... It's like wine and food. They're ever-evolving subjects. You can never yes. stop learning about them. So um, what within all the... Having all those um, publications that I've written about... Um, I've written for, I should say... Um, it started to change. Media started to change. And I had a friend who, related to seafood, and I'd met through the seafood work I'd done. He was representing a mussel farmer in Tasmania. And he rang me and he said, Phil's just, Phil needs some help with his social media. This would have been about 2015 or so. And I said, okay, look, I haven't worked officially in that capacity before, but how about I jump in and teach myself and and we'll give mates rates and let's see what happens. And it went from there and people were starting to hear I was doing that. So it's Love it. like, and from there it went to um, starting to actually talking to, um, doing some PR. Someone said, would you help me with a press release? And so much of um, communications and working in that space, that press release and media connection space is about your network. So I had a strong network from my restaurant days and my writing days. And I could, I started doing press releases and doing media campaigns for clients. And also because of those two elements of experience, I could also do collaborations because I knew how to organize events. And, you know, in, in a restaurant size, I'm not someone, I have friends who do extraordinary events, Melbourne Food and Wine Festival, that's breathtaking. But just, you know, tastings and getting people together in a restaurant space or a small space. I just realized I had all these strings to my bow, if you will. I thought, why on earth should I, shouldn't I, put them together so turn up media is the name of my business and it's about content which is the writing connection which is the pr and community which is the um collaborations and and telling stories so we bring in other content work now as well i've started in fact i might talk to you about this lily at some stage but um it's called kitchen kind so we've started talking to people about the emotion and love and ritual and tradition that food brings them in their life Mm. And they're telling their stories and we're sharing that on the Turnip Media website. We're only six episodes in or sessions, six um, additions into that. Sounds fabulous. So, um, it's, yeah. so with your love of food and everything else, now that you're writing about it and it's interesting when you say you're writing, you have to know the audience you're writing for and you write for the audience. Yes. Um, how is that different? And... Do you still enjoy eating the food and being in the restaurants now that you're looking, now that you write about it in a different way? I guess the, the beauty of it is I write it for Turnip Media, let's say, we're creating that very slowly but surely. I have a great woman who works with me and we, you know, we it's about she helps me measure and analytics and all that kind of stuff that is not my forte. Mm-hmm. So we write 
based on what we believe in and hope that people enjoy it or not. So um, a lot of we talk about our clients and share a lot of our clients' stories. So in that, so with, if I may, um, it's a lot about ethical farming and people who raise things thoughtfully and beautifully or are really passionate about food and wine. I often say to chefs, look, I like to work with people who are as mad about food and wine as I am. And that's why I think, as I've told you before, something I'm really proud of is the clients we work with because they are so hardworking. What are your personally, personal favourite touch, uh, taste things that you love? Like, okay. like where like does my palate tend towards? Yes, what are your favourite foods? Oh, what I'm... are your favourite dishes? Oh, okay, big question. Love it. I would say I tend towards more um, savoury flavours, ferments. Um, I like bitter. I like salty. I like, okay, just today before I came here for a quick lunch, I had some goat's cheese with fermented beetroot and some rocket leaves and some grilled chicken because that was left over from last night. But things like those um, sauerkrauts mm. and um, fermented flavours. I love cheese probably too much. Um, <laughs> no such <yeah>. thing. <laughs> Especially with the yeah. wide variety and you can get now. Exactly. And um, seafood is... Um, it's funny it's hard to say what dishes... My children are half Italian. So we have... And having... They have the most, you know, their father's a chef, their nonna's a chef. So they, I really learned a lot in my marriage about the beauty and purity of really good Italian cooking. Yeah. And so I would say I tend towards that, but also Japanese cuisine is something that's fascinating to me. And just also, again, purity, cleanliness, minimal, minimal um, preparation just respect of an ingredient I think and season uh, in season and when it's appropriate that's important so I love that you enjoy food so much because I certainly do <laughs> as well um, do you enjoy it differently now or when you're eating and tasting it and mm. you know you're going to write about the venue and about the food oh yeah is that a different experience of eating it now for you yes and it's interesting, if I hadn't answered this properly before, I apologise, but say, for example, a chef or a restaurant employs me to do their me- a media campaign and we go in and have something to eat there, they it becomes that one-on-one or with them and their management or other owners of what we need to focus on, where I see the stories. And they might come to me with a, it's our 10th birthday or we're opening a new restaurant or this is happening. So we've got a hook or an angle, but when we need to build on that. So yes, because the audience I'm talking to is firstly them and then each media outlet. So usually we send similar press releases, but sometimes I'll change them slightly or in my introduction to a media release because I'm talking to the media first with the view of how each one of their readerships, which are all slightly different or very different, Mm -hmm. will tap into the information I'm giving them. Interesting. Gosh, does that make sense? Yeah, it makes absolute (laughs) sense. Um, But you and I, for example, met at a fabulous brunch digestation yes. type thing yes and i love digestation because you get little tastes of a lot of different things and yes. when they're done by amazing chefs each one has a flavor and i just loved it i mean i was absolutely in heaven and so are you enjoying that in the moment in the same way and then you go and translate a, it and write about in it? In that particular context, so um, 
we met and I was, we'd already put the press release out and that's a very special venue in terms of yes. the story that they're, they're using 10 different chefs per season um, doing a dish each and it's going to culminate in a book after eight seasons so 80 recipes my view of that day for me was to work in terms of telling the story just in that moment and getting content for my for me and my business and also um, to let to tag them and let them know that if they want to use any photos or what I've got that they could do that so I did look at it differently in that I didn't go in there to to relax and and chill but um, yeah. I went in there to you know just and also be there and to yes. let your clients know so that really you support is them. a very different uh, type of thing yes. um, and because within the context of that yeah I wanted to tell everybody about every single dish but when you're doing 10 it it gets tough yes and but it's I'm still talking about it to so people good. what was your favorite it is well the first bite I had was of this amazing fish on uh, oh, the brand on, on the bread yeah and it was delicious and it was only as big as say not even a quarter piece of toast with this fish on it but mm. it was just sensational and then what happened that made it even more special to me mm. was when the restaurant told the story the restaurant owner told the story about the sustainable nearby farm and how not only do they use it for the freshness and the quality of their um, the produce that mm. they use, but then they pass it on and work with migrants and teach them about the farming and the food. Yes. Yeah. Oh no, that's a, it's an extraordinary. Um, can we say the name? Or yeah, no? of course. Yeah, great. So yeah, Square it to death. Oh, awesome. <laughs> um, Square One Rialto is by the Mulberry Group, who have about six or seven venues around the city. But they also have a, a farm called Common Ground Project, and they each one of their venues puts ten percent of all the, of their net profit to Common Ground Project. But Square One is going that step further, and and the ten chefs we mentioned before, they're going. Um, they have all contributed a dish. It's not about a financial transaction in any way. It's basically they're giving a dish, raising the profile with their profile of this new venue to contribute money to the Common Ground Project that have these training programs for um, people who are suffering from disadvantage or, and um, women who are, you know, um, seeking people, asylum seekers, just people who need a break and need a skill. And it's not just giving them stuff. It's actually no. working yeah, with training them, them where they, where they get trained. It's very special. So when Nathan Tolman, who's the founder of um, Square One, of the Mole Group, group, I should say, contacted me about this. Um, and he, he just wanted to do this and I just jumped out of my seat. I thought this is one of the most beautiful collaborative um, projects I'd heard about mm. for a long time because as giving and as lovely and as abundant and generous hospitality is, um, it doesn't, it can, um, it, this was just kind of a next step, I suppose, I'm trying to say. It was right, just like yeah. getting all these different chefs because they do, it's, it is an industry that's asked, that people ask a lot of hospitality, I, I believe. Yeah. And, um you know, just donating things or giving or... And this was just a, this wonderful the circle. The next step. Yeah. The next it was really step. really lovely. And I'm 
I'm not a shoulda. You should do this. You should do that. Mm. It's your responsibility because you've got so much. You should. I don't believe in that. I believe everybody is placed on earth for this particular time and they do what they feel they need to do and you should should don't should should order but today. When, <laughs> when, it's all about being happy within yourself yes and when you do things that make you feel good it doesn't have to make everybody feel good so looking around that venue and looking around at the people that were at the table, there were so many different types of people. Now they all had to have a social, uh, a, they all had to have some sort of money because it wasn't a free event and no. it was a little pricey, but it wasn't too bad. Yes, it was really very reasonable. Actually, I thought. So the wonderful thing about that was that this. Um, you know that this Mulberry group who already have more than enough on their plate mm. with all the venues that they've got you can understand them getting their own farm that's fine mm -hmm. but then to pass it on to people who are disadvantaged they don't have to do that they don't have to they do don't, that they don't need that extra headache but it was obviously something that somebody came up with so joyfully and joyously mm -hmm. and it's working well I, I would actually also say lily that maybe they do have to do that because nathan is the sort of person that he couldn't just do something without giving back. Yeah. So I think there are things, there are particular types of people in this world, well, there's all sorts of people in this world, I should say, but people like Nathan and his team, who are a joy to work with, that's um, a very logical next step for me. It's, yeah, it's not... I get it. Yeah, it's, they kind of had to do it. It's who they are. But people that don't... I wouldn't want to make them feel bad because then, you know. Some of us have the energy and capacity to do things like that. Yeah. Um, and the resources, potentially. And if and if it's not about resources, it's the wherewithal or the grunt or the there's something in you that yeah. goes, yep, yeah, I have to do that. I can't not do it. Do you know what it is within you that keeps you actually motivated enough to follow the ideas that come into your head? It's a great question because it's something that has surprised me about me, but I think over the, over the years, I wonder, as I said before, so my children who are now 21 and 18 were um, nine and six when their dad and I broke up. And I, for all sorts of reasons, very much did most of it on my own. Um, that's here nor there, that's just a fact. And I didn't know I had that in me. If you'd asked me as a child or as a young woman in my 20s traveling the world and would, could you, would you be a single mother and raise two children and um, have an awful lot of unexpected hardship or unexpected pain throw you, thrown your way on all sorts of levels, um, I don't think I would have known I had that in me. So knowing that I've, um, and as I, as I got bigger, and I had a lovely, I had a beautiful family, three great sisters. Um, my brother passed away many years ago. And my, my parents are beautiful and I have brilliant friends. So every now and again, I started to listen to them because I'd say, you know, they're that, because, you know, my children, are, you're doing this, you're raising them, this is this is you. And I hadn't looked at like like that and started to, and started to look at the kids and realized because they don't raise themselves no <laughs> and, um, and they're not as wonderful and 
and like yeah I just had a, a lovely network around me who reminded me and made me think hang on a minute so I slowly over time became kinder to myself about that and realized there was something in me if I could do that then why couldn't I do How? stuff with work you know yeah having dated a chef there really there really is something about them yes. that is very very different yes. that allows them to keep the hours and keep the passion and keep mm. the recreating yes and it's a very magnetic thing as well so yeah. i understand people marrying a chef mm. but what happens when you really feel that you've got to break that where you do need to go after something else and you've got little kids that are depending on you as well mm. what was not so much you know what happened as much as what do you remember what it felt like and how you were able to then do what you needed to do I remember um, chefs are I guess like any competitive industry, highly competitive, highly creative industry, you'll find anyone who works in those sorts of fields, artists, you know, designers, they all work all sorts of hours. They throw themselves into, um, a creative person will throw themselves often, you know, unreservedly and passionately into whatever their pursuit is. And uh, the thing about chefs is, and what I'm grateful for that I've taken into my writing world and even to, you know, writing, for espresso and things like that in the age. Um, you, you, do, you are reactive, but you, you're a really quick problem solver. You know, because if you're at nine o'clock on a Saturday night and an order's gone wrong and someone, something's gone to the wrong table or someone's not happy, you have to make everyone happy really quickly. So, or not, and you choose to do so. So my point being that chefs live in a, it's a very high pitched state through service. So to come down the other side, it's almost like they, um, it's, it's all or nothing all the time. So they sleep for a long time or they go and party as hard as they work. And it's a, it, it can be a very fraught industry. And, and what was it for you personally that you just thought, we grew apart. Oh, no, well, it was a, a mutual decision and we um, grew apart very much. And it So the was, feelings weren't there anymore. That's right. Or they would change because I'm sure you still loved him. We, the, the feelings shifted, yes. Yeah. And it was um, making, there was no happiness there, I think, as well as no, no, we chose not to be together. And, um, and that's a big decision to make. Especially and it, with kids. Yes. And um, it's turned, and it was initially very hard, you know, those first few years of establishing that and going so how through did that. You go through all of that. Well, sometimes it's very, <laughs> sometimes in a very difficult way, sometimes a very sad way. For a few years after that, um, I've referred to it about it with some of my friends without getting. Oh no, I, I got very sad. I was very depressed and. Um, Swam a lot. So you didn't, have the, you didn't have the impetus to sort of get up sometimes, but I, you swam. You chose to. Oh, I didn't want to get out of bed, but when you've got children, you do. And also, um, left foot, right foot is often something tell I just. About, tell me about the swimming. Oh, I get in the water and saying that I didn't swim this winter, but I'm back in there now. <laughs> 
I go through relationships with me in the pool. Um, I try to do a kilometre. A 50-metre pool, I do 20 laps. I'm not allowed to get out but until I've done it. to actually get to the swimming pool even or yeah, to get to the ocean pool. Was, was difficult for a time, but you... It was the yeah. joy of being in it that motivated The minute you. I got in the water, it's that sort of, you know, the minute I got in um, and took three or four laps, or strokes, excuse me, um, I'd be like, oh, thank God I'm here. But it just, it's a place under the water or swimming in the water, the, the repetition, I'd swim freestyle. The repetition's very meditative. The rhythm, I could switch off. Sometimes I'd think about nothing. Something. Sometimes I'd plan the day ahead. Um, Did you have other coping mechanisms like that when you were in that very different place for you? Ah, uh, yeah. Um, the kids, big focus on them, and I don't. I've talked to them about this, so I can say this so much so that I kind of neglected my my own care, like. I would often just throw myself into them and, and just, but I guess to turn that around, the coping mechanism was trying to get extra sleep. Um, Neglected your own care, what do you mean? My, um, I guess when I say I became quite depressed, the focus became on the fact that my marriage didn't work and I was tr- blaming myself and also doing something that I never thought would happen. I never thought my marriage would fail and I know a lot of people go through that because you're so full of hope and love and wishes and positivity, everything, everything on your wedding day and beforehand and, you know, in those, and then it, for so much of it, and then it starts to fall apart and you try to salvage it, which we did, and then it just, then there's no going back. And that is a really devastating um, truth to face. So it took me a while, I believe, I'd neglected myself because I didn't want to face the truth of what was happening. So I'd focus on a, a swim was good because I'd focus on work or what am I going to do with the kids doing the laps at that time. Um, or, um, but mostly it was a, I just neglected the truth of what was happening in my heart and my head. And one day, not even, it wasn't like one day I went, bing, that's it, I've got to deal with this. It was over time I thought, hang on, I need, I need me. I need to look after me. And... Um, so that certainly helped. And all the while, I was still doing freelance writing. I was still, but just what I needed to do. And what did you start doing to look after you? <sighs> started saying nice things to myself. Is that terrible? That so- started being, like, the voice, my na- you know, our voice and our talk. So I had... Um, Always, there was a very, at the very core of all of us, and some of us here, you know, you choose to listen to it all. We all choose to do what we need to do to get through the day. But I knew there was a core of me that was very calm and focused and knew where she wanted to go. And I tried a bit of meditation, tried some breathing exercises, walking, like swimming was good. But when I didn't want to swim, I'd just go for really long walks. And um, nothing a good walk can't fix, nothing a good swim can't fix, you know, that kind of thing. And um, so for me, it was just really slowly and gently through all those little, some yoga, yin yoga helps me still uh, incredibly. Um, Cooking. Would it surprise you to know that many people don't say or even think nice things about themselves it wouldn't surprise me at all we can all be so mean to ourselves it breaks my heart because i still am and i think yeah i still have days where i'm like oh and they don't even acknowledge the good within themselves and we're so yeah i do oh i realize most of us struggle with that many 
more more than us more of us than not i imagine i don't i think there's in that part of human frailty i just and the human um condition to be vulnerable to to mm. ourselves and our expectations of ourselves i learned also to be a bit calmer about the expectations on myself and the fact i was raising two children on my own sometimes those days that was enough for that day yeah i got i got them fed i got them but they're asleep I could watch the news, you know, like... How long did it take before you kind of felt that you were back to some kind of normality with you? A long... Like, if uh, after about five years, so 2012 we broke up, I'd say 2018, 2019. It, and I'm not saying that whole state yeah. was a, a state of depression no, or no, anything. No, there I was a big ba- a, a, a battle within, if you will. And um, I started to feel great sort of 2018, 2019. And did it change the way you parented and related to your kids? Mm, no. And I say that quite definitely like that because what I did find was I could as long as I talked to them about how I was feeling they knew I'd get sad I wasn't a didn't lock myself away didn't neglect them didn't fit no, none of that but they knew sometimes I was quiet or sad so I told them that I had been depressed and they knew that but it was nice for them to be able to talk and we, we talk very some of their friends comment to them that they, they're shocked that what they talk to me about. How do you talk to your mum about that? You know, we talk about it. Nothing's off the table. Um, Sounds very healthy. Well, it takes work and it, it doesn't mean we don't argue. It doesn't mean we don't annoy each other. It doesn't mean it's just there's nothing they can do to make me stop loving them. Yeah. And I think when you have that foundation... And it's so important for them to know. Mm, It is. We tell each other we love each other every day. Now, I don't know if apparently people don't do that, but maybe it's from losing my brother. I didn't get to say goodbye to him. So, and he died before my kids were born. So I wonder if that's sort of, I just tell them every day. I always have. That's also something that's pretty major to have um somebody you love and especially a brother who Mm. is gone all of a sudden how did you deal with and cope with that Mm. and there's no comparison with a divorce but how do you get through that kind of grieving when everybody in your family is grieving as well so that happened before my brother introduced my ex-husband and I they were, they, oh, my no. brother was in restaurants and, and my, as I said my ex-husband was a chef and they worked together at Donovan's in St Kilda wonderful Donovan's and um, so we met that way and my brother died three months before our wedding oh wow and I remember at one point we thought about not doing it but it's like no 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 let's, let's do it let's just let's you know I'm glad we did because my kids wouldn't be here otherwise but um you know, and you said it's not, you, you can't compare the two. And I actually found that going through the pain of, my brother struggled with addiction. And it's something I've talked about often in the in media and given talks about and things. That pain, um, and it was, it was, you know, one of those things that were terrifying that he might overdose, but you just hope he doesn't and he did. I felt like I could maybe deal with the divorce a little bit better than um, having that pain when he died and the initial shock of that day. The pain was crippling, as in I couldn't move. I just, and because um, the police came to tell me because it was here and we told, I t- told the family in Brisbane. And I just remember 
and I've had moments since, even moments since in my divorce, that when I go back to that pain, I've never felt anything like it and never will since. And I lived through that, so therefore I can pretty much live through anything. So I did get through the divorce. Maybe. Yeah. No, Does that make sense? It was, yeah, it was yeah, over. No, no, but there was something in you. And also, you know, with your brother, it's every person you love is also oh. going through a pain. And my pain. parents lost their child, which to yes. me is, I wasn't a parent then, but I am now. And I think that pain would be much more significant. Losing a sibling is terrible, but I can't imagine losing a child. And it's just a day-by-day thing. and Yeah, and you don't, um, you do... <sighs> It does change you significantly. This is the thing. Divorce changes you and makes very, people very sad. But this, the whole dynamic, we were five kids, four girls and a boy, and then and we're still five kids. I, I would never say yeah. I'm not one of five. I'm one of five, the fourth of five. My brother happened to pass away many years ago, 1999. And I just think you, um, as we've mentioned, touched on before, it's something that never it, it just you never get over it you were saying yeah that's that's it you don't it changes you so there's the you before and the you after and you never you don't get over it I don't even imagine how you'd get over it there's a wonderful thing I once heard that grief and this is the thing I learned that really confronted me with his death was what grief was I knew nothing about grief on this kind of level anyway. And it grief finds a permanent place inside you and makes a home there. And I really truly believe that because I think um, it's every year I always acknowledge online, let's say his birthday and his um, anniversary of his death. And some years it goes just fine. I ring my parents both those days. I ring them often, but <laughs> always those two days of the year I make sure I give them a call and tell them I love them. And, um, but it, so, and so other years, I just can't, I, I don't want to get out of bed and I want to cry, and I don't, but I have a good cry somewhere along the line, and it feels like he's just right next to me and he was here yesterday. So, you know, life changes significantly, and um, and so you, you learn how to live with it. You don't get over it, you learn how to live with it, and that is not just me. I've talked to lots of friends who, or not lots, but people I know who've either lost a child mm. or um, a sibling or just someone they love terribly. Does- it shifts everything. Yeah, and and people who haven't experienced it don't realise how profound it is. No, they don't. And I wonder sometimes, once, the best thing, I I still never forget that she said, the woman who said this to me at work after I got back to work after my brother had died. And she just walked up to me and said, I am so sorry. I have no idea how you're feeling. Can I give you a hug? And I said, sure. And I thought, that's... Where she didn't say, oh, you'll get over it, or oh, it'll pass, or it was just, she knew I was in pain and she didn't know, she couldn't, she basically acknowledged it by just mm. saying, I have no idea. And I've said that to friends who've gone through bad things. It's, yeah. you know, I don't know exactly that feeling, but gosh, I'm here for you. And yeah. I think when, and people need to, um, who haven't experienced it, oh, look, compassion's needed everywhere in the world, I think. Yeah. Oh, definitely, <laughs> but, you know, that whole are you okay campaign is yeah. a fabulous one it is it is it, yes yes because it, the questions become part of our vernacular yep. so and smile be kind to everybody because you don't know what they they've been through yeah. even 10 minutes before you came across them yeah kindness takes great strength that's one thing i've always said to my kids you know going through primary school and someone would be mean to someone and 
So try to be kind. Defend yeah. yourself. Always protect yourself and respect yourself, but be kind. Be kind to others. You have no idea what God's done in people's heads. Oh, no, you don't. You don't. And you just need to kind of approach life like that. Just yeah. just know that what you can give and put forward because then hopefully make someone feel better. Absolutely. Mm. And also finding your bliss, finding things that make you feel good yes. impacts everybody around you. It sure does. So it's important. You grew up, I mean, quite it's a, quite a large family. Mm. It's, you know, five kids and, um, and parents that were close. And you spent a lot of time together. You played together. You had dinner together. Mm-hmm. All of that was important. Mm-hmm. And um, you have... Obviously, and from what uh, you've been, we've been talking about a lot of friends and people that I'm you very special friends, are yeah. very close to and, yeah. and part of. And yet, you're still happy doing things on your own, whether mm. it's eating or movies or traveling or whatever. Yeah. Talk about that just for a little bit, because mm. for some people, it's their worst nightmare that if they can't find somebody to do something with, they just don't do it. I think there's an introverted part of me. I think we all, you know, I don't, I can't, that extrovert, introvert, I can't really define myself by either but one of them. But it's also a strength because you're but, not worried about what people are going to think if they oh, see you by yourself. And that's the part that most people get caught yeah. up in. And, you know, I think that's a societal thing more than anything else. If if imagine how free and happy we'd be if we stopped worrying about what everyone else thought of us and I have gotten maybe in terms of my work and what I've done and pushed sort of do the PR and the connections I had a great need to do it because I needed to make money and the money and there wasn't if you just want to work as a food writer there wasn't enough money there to make so I had to diversify my business that's just a logical thing but I also had to be brave and then I also had and with that yeah you just have to be brave and when I realise I just need to put that out there, I just need to believe that I am capable and I also like my own company and sometimes I need to just be brave and be strong and know that a bit of self-care might mean just going and having a glass of wine and a few oysters somewhere on my own. And I oysters. Oh, me too. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, and I think that it's just, if we all just gave ourselves that time, Absolutely. And just stop. Who cares? What's, if someone thinks you're a bit, uh, you know, what's wrong with you? You're on your own. They've got no idea. They're missing out. Yes. You know, I just, I just, it's too lovely a thing to not try. And what I really need to want to and need to say to you is that you have a very strong sense of self. I oh, get from you. you that you know who and what you are and you make your own decisions based on your own experience of you and life rather than what other people might think about you, which is such a wonderful thing because for me, it makes you very authentic and very real and Mm. really easy to talk to. So thank thank you. you. And thank you very much because we've we've run out of time, even though I haven't run out of questions. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Lily. Thank you, really. And 